Hey Humans, how's it going? Susan Ruth here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Hey Human Podcast. This is episode 299, and I had a conversation with Dr. Aprilia West. She's a psychologist, executive coach, songwriter, former political speechwriter, and author of What You Feel Is Not All There Is. She wrote it over the pandemic, came out last year. She and I discuss all sorts of things from the book and just from her work in general. Uh, We talk about emotional networks, triggers, behavioral patterns, choices we make uh, intuitively, uh, unconsciously, consciously, emotional intelligence, and a whole lot more. Uh, We do talk about suicide, so I just want to make sure that you know, everybody hears that that is a trigger warning for some. And so be aware that that is something that that happens during our conversation. Okay, usual stuff. Social media. Hey, human podcast can be found on Instagram and Facebook. My personal social media is Susan Ruthism, and that's on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. You can email me Susan at heyhumanpodcast.com. Rate and review Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And also subscribe. That really helps uh, with all the things, metrics that I don't understand, but I know it's true. On heyhumanpodcast.com, you'll find the links page. Every episode gets its own set of links to find more information about my guest and some of the things we talk about. And uh, Dr. West's website's on there, ways to get her book, her Instagram, Things that we talked about, I found some articles and YouTube videos to <clears throat> to support some of the conversations we had. So definitely check out that links page. If you would like to support Hey Human Podcast, help keep it ad-free, you can do so on the contribute button on heyhumanpodcast.com. Uh, you can go to susanruth.com to learn more about me. There's a recent article that came out uh, on a a magazine called Inside Wink that I posted on there. And (laughs) I interviewed some felted people, some puppets. uh, And the video from that is on SusanRuth.com. Had a lot of fun doing that. I'm going to take the audio from that and combine it with me interviewing the puppeteers. And uh, we'll be putting that episode out upcoming. But it was a real fun experience. Kind of wacky, having never interviewed puppets before felted people is how they like to be called and uh yeah i i think i went in thinking i was gonna be talking to puppeteers and puppets and so (laughs) it was really something uh anyway you can watch the video there on susanruth.com and uh you get a kick out of that okay um i think that's about it oh uh also on susanruth.com uh Besides being able to see those things, you'll learn more about me in general with my art and my music. And if you're into music, check out my All I Ever Wanted Was Everything album, which is on all the places you can get music. So definitely check that out. You can also sign up on the mailing list at SusanRuth.com. And I will eventually send out a mailer, probably. At least that's the rumor. Okay. That's about it. Thank you for listening. Uh, Thank you for sharing this with your friends and family and such. And take care of each other. Be well. Stay safe. And, uh, yeah, here we go. 
Dr. Aprilia West, welcome to Hey Human. Thank you. I get to call you April because I've known you for a very long That's time. That's right. All my <laughs> friends do. Yay. Yay. Um, we have a lot to talk about. Uh, you, you've written this book. Uh, and I've actually already started telling people about this book. Oh, nice. Which, uh, I don't know if it's more made for other people in the field, for, for you or for anyone, but it seems like it's digestible, in mm-hmm. my opinion. Mm-hmm. Having read a gajillion of books, uh-huh. um, it's very digestible, which is great. That's really great, because yeah. I worked hard to denerd myself enough for this to be a self-help book that anyone could read. Yeah, and yeah. we'll talk about the idea of self-help, too, because I think there's a lot of... Um, Big feelings around mm-hmm. that phrase, mm-hmm. uh, but we'll just start. What you feel is not all there is, and Dr. West wrote this. Did you write it with your dissertation? Is that or no? Actually, I wrote it during the pandemic. Oh, did you really? Yeah, Look yeah. At you being all <laughs> productive. <laughs> yeah, I love that. <laughs> it was a labor of love, but but you're correct that the skills training is something that I developed and piloted um, as part of my dissertation work. All right. Yeah. Okay, cool. And we'll get into that. I want to start with cool. you. Uh, where are you from? Family? Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So let's see. Uh, I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan. And then when I was eight, my whole family moved to Charlottesville, Virginia. And that's where I grew up. Um, and then, as you know, I ended up having about three or four different careers <laughs> before I landed um, in psychology, uh, first working on Capitol Hill as a speechwriter and a press secretary and a policy analyst, and then um, going from that to music, which is you know where I think we originally even met. Yeah. Um, and that uh, took me from Los Angeles to Nashville, and then I ended up uh, getting into mediation and got trained as a mediator and was doing victim offender mediations in the courts, and then. That was ultimately what led me um, into the field of psychology. You know, I'd already been doing some organizational consulting and coaching, but I really wanted to go deeper and be able to understand people's psychology on a deeper level. So uh, I went and got my doctorate in clinical psychology, and and now here we are. Did you have a family that, because all those, all those things are very social conscious aware, uh, did you have a family that was like that or mm. was that, were you a different mm-hmm. kid in the, in the group? No, I, my, both of my parents were um, in the, in, in helping fields. My dad was in the mental health field and my mom was in nursing. So I grew up where, you know, in a, in a household where um, being of service was a core value, and I took that to heart. And yeah, it was always a—it's always been a deep part of who I am or how I see myself. The the musicality part of it, the songwriting part—I think that you do have to have an understanding of human psychology and sociology in order to be a good writer. And I imagine those skills are also quite necessary when writing speeches especially for people on the hill. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, you know, it's such an interesting um, question that I get a lot, like, how do all these things, you know, go together? And I'm like, actually, really smoothly, because so much of the work that I do now and the work that I did on the hill or as a songwriter writing for so many different artists and different genres with different life experiences has to do with really deeply uh, imagining context 
So, you know, if you're writing for someone else, you're thinking about what's it like to be this person who came from this background and had these experiences and believes these things. Uh, and that really served me well in politics and in music and now in psychology and coaching. Sometimes I think of speechwriters must have to be a little bit like defense attorneys hmm. because there there must be a level of, you know, this is bullshit moments hmm. that you have to, to make flowery or make palatable or reframe and restructure in order to to get the masses on board or the mm -hmm. jury or whatever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Is there a parallel to that, you think? Yeah, I think, you know, I... It's interesting. I, I don't, I didn't myself have any moments where I felt like, oh my gosh, I have to sort of um, manipulate people. But I definitely, uh, you know, sort of <laughs> leveraged the art of persuasion as much as possible, um, which, you know, is also something you do in songwriting. It's like, how do you evoke a certain emotion? How do you hit those notes to accomplish whatever, uh, whatever your mission is? Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating, isn't it? Mm -hmm. All the overlapping mm -hmm. fields of study and practice. When you were growing up, were you an emotional kid? Were you more mm -hmm. in check? I think I was always very uh, passionate, and I would say that I always have had a streak of, you know, when things don't work out the way I hope or expect, I, I've always had a hard time with that. Um, you know, I, I joke that uh, one of the hardest skills for me to learn, it's also in the book, is radical acceptance. Um, and just allowing things to be, the reality of things to be the way they are. And I've gotten much better with practice, but you know, I would say in that way, I've always been um, very passionate, a little stubborn. And, and I also, and I think I talk about this in the book, I, I will say that I feel like the volume was turned up for me, which I found, I don't know about your experience, but with a lot of artists or musicians, that we just tend to feel things very deeply. And, uh, and it's, it's different. It's different than a lot of other people experience themselves in the world. So it's no surprise that the work you do now is completely connected to your big feelings That's as a right. Kid. No, not a surprise to me or I, I think anyone who knows me. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Obviously you love what you do now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of your previous incarnations, did you always see the writing on the wall that you were heading toward this? No, actually. In fact, I think because of my parents' um, involvement in psychology, you know, I grew up around so much of it. And, you know, I, like just to give you, to paint the picture a little bit, you know, I remember my mom saying things to me like, well, you know, now that you're 16, you need to individuate. So you're going to be wanting to rebel against me and that's okay. And, you know, so if anything, I think I was sort of like, ugh, psychology, get me out of here. Um, so I definitely didn't see making this turn. Um, and in retrospect, it seems like the most obvious choice that just took time to crystallize. Um, you know, even when I was doing music, I think that there was a part of me that was approaching, you know, co-writes like 
therapy sessions. You know, I remember um, you know, a couple of artists I work with who were like, oh my God, that was the best therapy session I've ever had. And, you know, now I understand the science and research which would support the things mm-hmm. we were doing that would that would be therapeutic. So Yeah, I've heard yeah. that same thing mm-hmm. in a lot of my co-writes mm-hmm. as well. That's I can imagine. But I mean, it is, you're digging into, we have this human condition and Again, you talk about this in the book, is that it's this mm-hmm. feeling mm-hmm. that we are alone in that, and but we're not at all. And you know, mm-hmm. the person sitting next to you is probably also amped at 12. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and everyone's dealing with their personal story, mm-hmm. again, in yeah. the book, yeah. that your story is, is leading you instead of you leading the story. Am I paraphrasing yeah. that correctly? Uh, it's great. And, you know, so just to expand a little bit on that, you know, we're all such a complex confluence of our biology, our learning history, um, the biases that we all come hardwired with to survive, and then our beliefs about our emotions. And we can look really different depending on what we you know, how all of those factors come together. Mm. So, you know, it's, but, but, but what it, we do have in common is that everyone has a tendency to believe that whatever they feel is true. Yeah, we see that a lot these days, don't yes. we? Very much so. And I imagine it's always been there, but not now the lovely internet is making that so amplified. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's. I like to think of, you know, I know a lot of people have big feelings about the internet, but I like to think of it as a mirror. Yeah, you know, it's showing us what's happening, what's going on. Well, it's, we're oh, it's aware showing of us it. what who what we think we are, what we think we feel. It's, yeah. it's been built to yeah. re-amplify mm-hmm. our feelings on a bigger place. Yeah, they're like projections. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Which is really interesting. Yeah, it is. Yeah, um, your what what field was your father in mental health? What field was it specifically? Uh, well, he was an administrator, oh, okay. so he oversaw um, large mental health programs and so he saw everything all from. Stuff. Oh yeah, yeah, everything from, um, you know, substance abuse to mental health. Yeah, I get it on the mom side with the teaching. That's mm-hmm. you have to be. I think all the things: a parent, a guardian, a, you know, a, a nurse, a psychiatrist mm-hmm. <laughs> without the medication, mm-hmm. or maybe because you mm-hmm. might say, "Hey, this kid needs to be put on something." Or, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. a grief counselor, mm-hmm. all the things. Mm-hmm. It's such a position. I was just having a conversation earlier with somebody, this is off topic of you, but about how uh, there are people that are drawn into these fields who take unfortunate advantage of that uh. place of trust. And yeah, it's such a bummer. I don't know. Yeah. I just, I, yeah. I think about it a lot about how vulnerable Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and not just children, but adults are vulnerable. I've been a friend mm-hmm. of mine is is uh, in a vulnerable state emotionally, mm-hmm. and is starting to dig into more conspiracy theory stuff mm-hmm. because it speaks mm-hmm. to that. Yeah, and I always liken it yeah. back to uh, when I interviewed the Klan guy and mm-hmm. what he looks for when he's indoctrinating, what he looks for mm-hmm. in a person, mm-hmm. and it's so parallel. Yeah. And it's not that hard to indoctrinate a person mm-hmm. in anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know. That stuff constantly fascinates me. Yeah. No, it's really fascinating. I mean, I sometimes joke that our minds are cheap and easy. You know, we really are. We, we are so um, hardwired to over-index for safety, certainty, coherence, comfort, and pleasure 
that we will you know, adapt whatever we're experiencing or whatever's going on around us to try and fit that. Mm-hmm. So if someone is extremely vulnerable, um, it's, it's a lot easier to indoctrinate them or convince them or, you know, take power mm-hmm. in without the relationship. Them even, and most of the times without them even realizing mm-hmm. it, it's baby yeah. steps to yeah. giant steps. Yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, fortunately there are many fewer bad actors in my field than are, you know, good intention people. Um, But, you know, I can only speak for myself. I take the position very, very seriously and and people's vulnerability and trust in me Mm -hmm. um, with, you know, the utmost care and responsibility. I I think it's the best thing ever invented <laughs> and I always I had a conversation because I was coming here today uh thank you by the way for uh, mm-hmm. having me in your home uh I was talking to my father about therapy and therapists in your book and he said oh I went to therapy once I hated it it was terrible it was very uh Freudian and I laughed I said dad what year what decade was that I said <laughs> therapy's come a really a long long way you know he's much older now mm-hmm. and but in that you have to try a few people on for size and the first couple times may not fit right and it's okay people have a lot of it's like breaking up with your hairdresser breaking up with Mm -hmm. a therapist is probably the same weird feeling of Mm -hmm. oh my god i'm doing Mm -hmm. something terrible or can i want to speak to that for one second it's nothing to do with your book except for it also (laughs) does because what we believe we become uh, for people that maybe are in a therapy situation where they're, they're either not feeling heard, not feeling safe, not feeling like they're progressing, all those things, what can you recommend to help them transition out of that into mm-hmm. a, a new situation? Yeah, so, you know, it's pretty much like any relationship. If it's not working for you, then you don't want to stick with it. I'm a big fan of people breaking up with their therapist if it's if it's not helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I say this to my own clients sometimes, you know, if you're not getting value out of this, or let's really watch to be sure that you're getting value out of this, or else, you know, maybe there's someone else that you would have a better fit with, or maybe we've just, you know, done our work and you're ready to move on. So, um, you know, I, I, I always encourage people to break up with me if that's what's yeah. right. <laughs> there's also so many modes. Again, like I explained to my dad today, there's so many modes of therapy. There's so many different kinds. Well, there are. And I was, when, you, when your dad said what he said, I was thinking, like, there are some people who still practice um, who are psychoanalytic and would probably do a lot of the same things that Freud did even mm-hmm. today. Uh, But therapy has just progressed so much since then. And there's so many different, um, you know, versions to choose from different flavors, different, you know, and depending on what your goals are. Yeah. um, Well, I joked with him because he was like, well, dad, you are Jewish. So you probably did want to fuck your mother. (laughs) He (laughs) laughed at that for about five minutes. (laughs) And he said, a Jewish boy's relationship with his mother is complicated. I said, I get it, dad. I get it. Okay, mm-hmm. so where were you in the pandemic or you went, you know what, mm-hmm. I need to write a book. <laughs> yeah, for maybe not in my right mind. Uh, but <laughs> no, you know, this book had been um, wanting to be birthed for a while. And actually it was a colleague of mine who asked, 
I love this so much. He asked if he could use the slides from my therapist training with his clients because he thought they would be so helpful. And I just thought to myself, oh, that's so pitiful. You know, I should put this into some form that, you know, clients can actually uh, use. And so I had been intending to do that. And originally the book was just going to be a workbook. Uh, to accompany the clinician's guide to emotion efficacy therapy. It has a, a little bit of a workbook vibe oh, yeah. as I'm going it's, through it. has a whole skills training in it. Yeah, yeah. which is why yeah. I said it. It seems very palatable because mm-hmm. it, it's got a little bit of everything. Mm-hmm. Like I can feel the hmm. this, I don't want to say highbrow because I don't want to scare anybody away, but this sort <laughs> of clear, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um clinical yeah it's got the science yeah it's got the clinical part but it's also got this easy you can do this thing what did we just talk about yes we talked about this Mm -hmm. think about Mm -hmm. these thoughts Mm -hmm. which feels Mm -hmm. very uh familiar Mm -hmm. and loving Mm -hmm. oh that's so nice to hear so i worked really hard to try and make the book feel accessible i wanted to make sure that people got their science um for the science nerds like me out there, but that also um, it was accessible. So I used lots of examples of me working with clients and I um, used stories about myself to help you know further the learning in the book. But then also there is that uh, skills training where you know, I ask people to reflect on what they've read, um, I give them some challenges, uh, and also there's experientials if they are interested in going to the next level available on my website that they can use to practice the skills in an activated state. Yeah, I noticed as well that you, the way the book is put together, that you are talking to people who are feeling people as well as people who are visual people. Because mm. the charting that you did with, like, with the Aww. little diamonds and stuff, for me, I feel like people who are more visual with their information, mm. that will mm. resonate really well. And then the other people, there's, you know, the little sections that you sort of set apart where you reframe or um, just restate what went on in the chapter previous. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's a name yeah, for that. Yeah, the learnings, yeah. Yeah, that, yeah. Uh, that that is for a certain kind of person. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's yeah. interesting to see that kind of combined <laughs> in one thing because I think a lot of times these types of books are one or the other. Mm. Gosh, Susan, I really appreciate you noticing that. You're seeing my, so I have a master's in teaching. I don't know if I, I shared that, that with you, but, um, and so I was trying in every possible way to do things that would help people retain what they were reading. And mm-hmm. people are such different learners, you know, some are visual learners, some are not. Um, and then at the end, I wanted to make sure I condensed sort of the highlights, the main points of each chapter so that people could review them another time mm-hmm. because the book does build on itself. So if you're not getting what happens in chapters, you know, two through four, you're probably not going to be able to do the experiential exercises in chapter five. So mm-hmm. it was really important to me that all along the way I was scaffolding for people to know really internalize what they were getting and I get the deep cut of that the meta version of that is the fact that that's what we are just as human beings right we are uh, the matrix the scaffolding Mm. of ourselves the Ah. whatever you want to call it yeah yeah so the metaphor the metaphor the matrix is so rich for this book uh, because you know essentially when it comes to our emotions we don't actually realize that we are wired to make fast automated choices 
Um, and so many of the choices we make, we're not even aware we're making. You know, we actually make uh, around 35,000 choices a day, which is insane when yeah, you think about it. Yeah, I loved it. that when you wrote that. I was like, whoa. Yeah, yeah. Because I know this stuff. I yeah. know that our brain our brain has responded long before our, con- our unconscious mm-hmm. mind has done the thing long before our conscious mind is even mm-hmm. aware. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we emotions start before we're even aware that they have begun, and and the science is yeah the science is starting to show that it usually starts uh, with sensations in our body, but the 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 matrix part of this, which I think is so cool, is that because you know we're making thirty five thousand choices a day, and ninety eight percent of those are fast automated choices we're actually not uh, choosing in ways that are authentic and therefore we're also not creating uh, what's possible for ourselves and our life. And, and that means that very few of us are operating at the level that we could be. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What was your dissertation on? Mm-hmm. Uh, my dissertation was on uh, emotion efficacy. So. Was, oh, explain yeah. that a little bit. Yeah. I sure. Think that's a fascinating yeah, emotion sense. efficacy is the ability to stay focused on what matters, even in the face of stress, challenge, or pain. So you could think of it a little bit like if um, emotional intelligence, psychological flexibility, and resilience had a love child. That's emotional efficacy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I got interested in it because I, you know watched from my time in politics and then even being in the entertainment industry for a while and I would see people who seem to you know sort of have higher levels of well-being or um, even just you know success interpersonally and I was curious about it I was curious about why is that and so you know, as soon as I started my doctoral studies and I was asked, you know, what do you want to focus on? I knew, you know, I want to understand what is this thing? What does it mean for people to thrive, to be well? What is it that we have to develop? What kind of skillfulness must we have in order to, you know, hack our full potential in life? And, um, and as I was, you know, studying this very rich research, and by the way, I do want to just do a hat tip to all the um, behavioral researchers who you know, did most of the research that led to me developing the protocol and being able to even do research on that. Um, It was clear that there, you know, are, there are certain processes that people get really good at, um, which enables them to make more authentic and creative and intentional choices. And the opposite is true. And the opposite is also true. And that's, to me, that's an even bigger, like, aha, that Mm -hmm. that you have Mm -hmm functions in place mm-hmm. that will allow you to do what is absolutely the worst for you. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, and I talk about that actually in chapter three as being chronic. See what I did there? Yeah, you, this is skillful. <laughs> <laughs> I almost cussed there. <laughs> You're allowed to cuss. You know. that was you'd some, be surprised. That, you, that was some skillful shit you laid down <laughs> just now. Um, you'd be surprised when people have said on this show. Awesome. I don't know if I would, but I love it. <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, the the most, the easiest way to characterize what those processes are that we do that don't work well for us is in terms of chronic emotion avoidance. So, again, if we over-index for safety, certainty, comfort, pleasure, and coherence, then we're automatically going to move away from anything that we don't like, 
and we're going to move toward things we do. And that's what I call being in default mode. You know, that's where we're still plugged into this emotional matrix. So we'll just do whatever feels good and we'll do it even, you know, unwittingly. Like if we're sitting somewhere and we're uncomfortable, we shift. That's a very small example. By body, you mean they can't shift your body. Exactly. (laughs) You'll just shift your body. Um, and, uh, with a more extreme example being, you know, you have a fight with your partner. So you go to the bar and you, um, you know, do five shots of tequila. So you don't have to feel the feelings and have the thoughts that you're having. And, Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, so that kind of avoidance over time leads to patterns of avoidance, which I call in the book, unhelpful default patterns. And that's really where people have the ability to level up in life is catching those unhelpful default patterns and then figuring out in that moment that they're triggered, what really matters to me? How do I want to show up? Being able to ask that question is so powerful and so transformative for most people. I don't know if you were familiar with the emotional stuff model, but yeah, no, no. so if I were, let's play for a minute. Okay, goody. If I were to, <laughs> if I were to ask you, Susan, how do you know what you're feeling in any moment? What would you tell me? I listen to my body. Okay. Would be my first response to that. All right. So you listen to your body. What else? Uh, how do I know what I'm feeling? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, p- previous experience would be another answer to that. How does that help you know what you're feeling? Uh, because if I've felt it before, I can reference the mm. the okay the onion. Okay, all right. <laughs> in my brain, okay. go down a few layers and see yeah. where I felt it before. Uh huh. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah. So even there's no wrong answers. I know. But no, wow, there's no wrong <laughs> answers at all. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you, the second part of what you're saying is more of a referencing, like this experience is like another experience, and therefore I'm going to you know, label it the same, which is fine. But in terms of like knowing in in a moment what we're experiencing, you know, the model that um, I created for, for this book is called emotional stuff. And what a lot of people don't understand is that emotions are not just feelings. That's how we tend to talk about them. But actually emotional experience is made up of a lot more. It's made up of stuff, which stands for sensations in your body. And the thoughts that we have, totally part of the emotional network um urges which is you Mm -hmm. know an impulse to do something or not to do something and then the feelings actually you know are you know come come at the end that's your interpretation of everything going on in context so you know usually we we we're able to go right to the feeling but there's so much more going on and when we know that it gives us the ability to pause like you you know, already do, and then check in, you know, what's happening in my body? What's, what are the thoughts that are going on? And and how are these thoughts maybe triggering sensations or or vice versa? And then what are the, what's the urge here? What does it make me want to do or not do? Mm -hmm. And then how would I label this feeling? And the thing that a lot of people don't realize is we can have lots of different feelings at once. And Another interesting thing is you can have the very same sensations, thoughts, and urges, but have a totally different feeling depending on the context it's occurring in. So I'll give you an example. Uh, let's say your sensations are elevated heart rate, shortness of breath, and a warm feeling throughout your body. And let's say the urge is to jump. And let's say that the thought is 
um, I can't believe this is happening. Okay, so what what would the feeling be there? <clears throat> what could the feeling be? Uh, that I can't believe this is happening. I feel stressed about it. Okay, so I... the feeling could be stress. Yeah. What else? <clears throat> uh, uh, the heart rate makes me think that it's a fight or flight. Okay. Okay, could be a fight fear. or flight. So yep, fear. yep, yep. Yeah. Um, could be love and excitement. Okay, yes, exactly. Right? So heart rate going up, that's excitatory. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's uh, an, an aversive situation, though. It could also be excitement. It could be arousal. Mm -hmm. So we really need our feelings, those interpretations, to help us make sense of what's happening. Mm -hmm. That's also what can get us in trouble because we can misread the emotional signals that come from our sensations, our thoughts, and our urges. I think I have a good example of this. When mm -hmm. I first started performing, mm -hmm. and I, the first time I got on the stage in this place called Madison's Cafe, it's no longer, it doesn't exist anymore, it's in Seattle, and I would get so nervous, because I'd never really performed. Mm -hmm. I had in choir when I was a kid around, you know, 40 other women or girls at the time, mm -hmm. but <clears throat> for me to do it by myself, so I would go in and I'd be nervous and I'd always have to poop. Yeah. And I would go to the bathroom and I would just be so like, oh my God. And then I would get mm -hmm. on stage and I would perform and it'd be fine, but I always had this massive stage fright when I first started. Oh, yeah. Then over the years yeah. of performing, I'd get butterflies in various places, but for some reason that place and those, those, that first year of learning to perform, mm -hmm. anytime mm -hmm. I walked into that place, yeah. stomach rumble, half yeah. to the bathroom. Years later, uh, I came back to visit my family and we were going there. They had been rebought, renamed, whatever, and my nephew was performing there. Hmm. Pretty cool. <laughs> walked in, immediately I had to go to the bath. Immediately. Ah. I, w I was not, obviously, uh -huh. I wasn't performing. Mm -hmm. I wasn't the one doing it, but my mm -hmm. body was like, oh shit, we're mm -hmm. here again. We yeah. have to go to the bathroom now. Yeah. And yeah. it's the same. Yeah. I'm like, what is it? It was so surreal. Yeah. yeah. Because I, I felt like I had zero control over that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's amazing how, you know, the emotional network will just pair things together, you know, and it's why people even get PTSD is mm. because they. Um, they start to associate certain sounds or sensations or experiences with trauma that has never gotten processed and then, you know, sort of filed away neatly like most experiences that we have are. And so um, it's hugely powerful. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. yeah, I did some of that tapping work in one of my therapy sessions along the way. And I thought that was really interesting. You have to talk about a particular event while they're mm -hmm. tapping different, or you're tapping different parts of your body, and it's like mm -hmm. your brain is thinking about that. I don't know how it works, mm -hmm. I, but it works. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. it's wacky. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I don't know who yeah. figured all this stuff out, yeah. but yay. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Even if it's just placebo, I'm always like, yay. <laughs> I think a lot about generational pain and generational PTSD mm -hmm. and, uh, and nurture nature. Do you have siblings? Mm-hmm, yeah. I do. Uh, are your siblings very much different from each other? My siblings, everyone's complete. We're so different yeah. from each other. Mine are, um, though, because I was adopted, I think that that's uh, probably a, another possible reason why our personalities are different. Well, how much, do, how do you feel about the nurture nature conversation and also mm -hmm. the generational DNA Yeah, trauma? the epigenetic stuff. Um, you know, uh, like I talk about in my book, the biology is the nature and the learning history is the nurture. 
So I definitely think both are involved. Um, and yeah, I couldn't say much more than that without doing a lot <laughs> deeper of research. You know, and then epigenetics are, is really interesting too, mm-hmm. which, you know, for people who aren't familiar, it has to do with uh, the experiences that we have and what, how genes get expressed. Uh, that might not either be expressed at all or might be expressed differently depending on what happens. You know, I think that there's probably a lot more we don't even know yet because we don't have the instruments or the or ways to measure. We're not asking the right questions yet. And mm-hmm. we'll, we'll probably learn a whole lot more even over the next 10 years There's about a book that. Uh, by Dr. David Reddish uh, that I think you would really like. And the name of the book, of course, escapes me. All right, let's talk about security. That's a okay. good one. Mm-hmm. Um, and what you mean by that, you mean emotional security? Emotional security, because mm-hmm. I think that's a big part of how we operate. It yeah. may be the yeah. only way we operate, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so let's talk well, about that a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I love that you picked that word out because this goes back to what I was saying earlier about how we tend to over-index. And by over-index, I mean we are uh, organizing our behavior and our choices to allow for the maximum level of safety, certainty, coherence, comfort and pleasure possible. So that I think that fits really well with what you're asking about in terms of security and, and how that works for us. Um, we all want to feel secure and we'll do it sometimes even at our own expense, even sometimes at the expense of our own security. That's what's so interesting and or ironic or paradoxical about all of this is that the more we avoid what we don't want, we uh, tend to not only create more suffering for ourselves, but sometimes we end up creating the very thing we're trying to avoid. I it think really that happens work. almost 100% of the time, yeah. weirdly. <laughs> it, it happens a lot. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I opened the book talking about life and pain. And, you know, um, I think so often when people come to therapy or coaching, they're coming because they want to get rid of a certain experience. And often I feel a bit like a dentist <laughs> because I it's my job to tell them, actually, no, you know, life is pain. There's pain in life and you can't get rid of pain in life. Yeah, I circled that about four mm-hmm. times. Okay. That was at the beginning. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so what the way I think about it's it's the same with security, right? Is um, we want security. We don't and not having security is is emotionally painful. And by the way, guys don't like I've learned this. Guys don't, don't tend to like the word pain for emotional pain. So you can also substitute the words you know, distress or discomfort or, you know, whatever works for you. But um, we're not going to be able to escape pain. That's just not possible. What we can do is we can choose the kind of pain we want to have. We can either choose the kind of pain that leads to unnecessary suffering, which is, you know, just avoiding anything that is uncomfortable. Uh, but then we also don't end up being able to do what really matters to us in our lives because that's too much risk. Or we can choose the kind of pain that goes with going after what we really care about. Um, and that's that kind of pain is usually the kind of pain that most people, once you present it that way, are willing to have. And I, I'm going to throw this out there. The mm-hmm. people that avoid feeling their pain by by being extra extra risky extroverted risk takers they're jumping out of planes and climbing up icicles yeah. and 
and that kind of thing yeah. because that also is a form it's a drug in its own yeah. way yeah. that's keeping us from touching down touching the mm-hmm. grounded part of ourselves yeah it could be it could function as avoidance right and so one of the other things i have in the book is called a what it's, it's a wtf inquiry and it stands for what's the function so we can figure out if we're avoiding you know, moving away from what matters or moving toward it by asking that question. So we would ask, you know, WTF about jumping out of planes and driving at 90 miles an hour on, you know, Mulholland Drive or whatever. Um, And depending on what the person says, it might be that they're actually trying to avoid uh, painful emotional experiences Mm. or... um, Because it floods your body with it. It's like its own cocaine, of course. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It shifts your whole emotional state. Yeah. Mm Mm-hmm humans yeah. huh Am yeah right? <laughs> humans my favorite though what have you learned about yourself in this process because i imagine that you had a lot of aha moments how would you mm-hmm. not the whole book mm-hmm. is is, mm-hmm. is full of those moments yeah yeah well so i learned i'm a lot nerdier than i thought <laughs> Because the first few drafts um, were not nearly as accessible, and, and I actually had to go back through and, and work to break it down more. Um, I learned that I have really high distress tolerance, and what, what I mean by that is, you know, I wrote this book um, going through the worst of double frozen shoulder. And, you know, I, I don't was, know what that is. You yeah, know. double frozen. So frozen shoulder is a syndrome where your shoulder, the, it's called adhesive capillitis, and literally your, um, the tissue around your shoulder adheses to the shoulder. And so there's lots of phases, but the first phase, which is just awful, is a freezing phase. And uh, somehow I was able, not somehow, I used the skills in this book. (laughs) I was able to surf through that discomfort to finish writing this book. So I learned, yeah, I have high distress tolerance. Not Um, unlike a Navy SEAL, for example. Yeah. Or a high marathon type runner or a... Yeah, it's a good good example. So, or, or high emotional efficacy because what I was doing was I was willing to have the discomfort in order to do what mattered most to me. And that was work on this book, finish this book and get it out. Do you... So the body reacts to emotions all the time. We Mm -hmm. experience those things. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Do you think that there was emotion then around getting this information out and then your body went, Uh try and get through this lady? I wish I thought that's what it was (laughs) because that would mean that it would be gone now. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But no, I think that this is, you know, this is something else going on with me. Um, I will, yeah, the, you know, the book emotionally uh, for me was exciting um, and I really enjoyed putting it in this format because before this, you know, there was the skills training, but it was pretty straightforward and didactic. And this allowed me to be more creative and to, to speak with, you know, my own voice to people um, in the way that I would speak a lot to a client, you know, who I was working with. And so it was really, it was fun to, to be able to uh, write in a different kind of way. I've been writing in such a scientific format for the last, you know, mm-hmm. 12 years. And so it was a nice shift back into a different format. Why do you think the go-to for the brain is to fuck us? Why do you think that's sort of its 
it's seemingly its go-to moment. Hmm. And again, it's that thing of like making choices or... I don't, so I don't think that the go-to of the brain is to fuck us. And and let me explain what I mean. Your brain, and and by the way, I think of, I don't, I don't distinguish like brain and body the way a lot Mm. of people do. I think of it in terms of one big holistic emotional network. I think that we are wired to do things that aren't in our best interest because our brains, if to use your term, haven't evolved um, in the same way that our world has evolved. So for instance, um, we're not actually trying to survive physical danger like we were, you know, Um, brain reaction, but the brain reaction is, is, you know, if, if I'm at the office and someone gives me side eye, the way that my emotional network responds is, is if I've spotted a lurking tiger around the perimeter of my village. And so survival now has come to mean anything that threatens the way that we either want to be seen or the way we want to see ourselves. Mm, so, you know, yeah. yeah. And so another way of thinking about this is, you know, the way that Buddhism approaches it, which is ego. When we're attached to being seen a certain way or life being a certain way, then that causes suffering. That's suffering. So the threat has completely changed. Um, but to make it even more understandable, emotions send us three kinds of signals. And I talk about this in the, in the second chapter. They send us either defaults or values. And um, helpful defaults are like messages to survive. So if you and I are standing in the corner and a bus starts, you know, like careening toward us, our default emotional urge is going to be to jump out of the way. That's helpful We, if we want to survive, right? Assuming that we do. And I think we both would. Um, if, however, uh, someone uh, says to us, you know, I don't, I don't want to be in this relationship anymore. And our brain tells us that, you know, we need to run away. That may not be in our best interest. It's more complicated now, you know. Um, maybe you want to be in the relationship and just deciding, well, I'm out then. I got to get out of the way of this. This is something dangerous is not, uh, you know, a helpful read of it. So what we what we actually have to do is upgrade our choice making system. It's almost like a, you know, a new version. We need like emotional choice making uh, reboot or, or upgrade. Uh, so that we can ask ourselves whenever we get triggered by an emotional signal, you know, what's happening here? So we can decode, like, is this what really matters most to me? Is that what the signal is telling me about? Or is it more like noise um, where it's just like, oh, you know, I just heard a loud noise. There must be danger kind of thing. Or another example is like, is it a smoke alarm that's going off when there's no fire? Mm-hmm. With kids, mm-hmm. let's say you raise up two children, two different homes. Mm-hmm. One child gets raised up, freaking awesome. Mm-hmm. Like, not overly spoiled, not utterly spoiled. Needs met on the, mm-hmm. on the needs scale. Yeah. All the good stuff. Feels ba- loved. Basic Abraham Maslow's. Yeah, feels safe, okay. feels loved, yeah. feels heard. Well fed, well cared for. Uh-huh. All that stuff. Uh huh other side you know absolutely the opposite maybe abused 
un, unloved un, or maybe love but love means something not so great hmm. love and danger are the same bedfellow right maybe even literally um all that stuff no means bleh, no needs being met mm-hmm. and yet those two people grow up and the child that seemingly had the perfect mm-hmm. life mm-hmm. everything falls apart yeah and the child yeah. that grew up in this hostile environment mm-hmm. grows up to thrive mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. huh yeah well so it takes me back to the three b's which is you know it's not just about our biology and it's not just about our learning experiences it's also about um it's also, sorry, it's not just about our learning history, it's also about biology and our beliefs about our experiences that develop along the way. So, you know, even within a family, you could have kids that grow up with the exact same parents and yet, you know, they end up expressing themselves so differently. Or, or being treated differently, for that matter. Yeah, well, and so as a behaviorist, I see like even the way that people treat us has to do with um, reinforcement you know, we, we, this is a whole other podcast, but we teach people how to treat us, right? Oh, interesting. Yes. I yeah. believe that. 100%. Yeah. So, Boundaries. you know, yeah, exactly. You, we know, I mean, even like on a, on a implicit level, you and I sitting here in this interview have taught each other how to behave, right? Um, we like, you know, I know that I'm not going to lean over and, you know, talk too close to the mic or, <laughs> you know, we, we have certain agreements. Um, so, yeah, it's it's hard, I think, to read how people treat you as being about, you know, about the other person completely. It's a system. Well, I, I do believe that people only treat you based on how they feel about themselves. I think that's a statement in my life that is what I've experienced that people will treat you how they feel about themselves so I'm saying something a little different which is it it's a system so not only are they influenced or shaped by how they feel about themselves they're also influenced and shaped by how you respond right right no I get that it's a whole loop absolutely yeah no I get that the the Mobius strip like feeding Mm -hmm. back on itself Mm -hmm. yeah no I totally get that Mm -hmm. and and Mm -hmm. I do think that uh that we do, do do that subtly. That's how mentalists work, right? They can ascertain all sorts of things mm. about a person mm-hmm. on this tiny, tiny micro scale, mm-hmm. which is the mm-hmm. same thing, saying tiny, tiny micro scale, but it came out of my <laughs> mouth anyway, and I'm sticking to it. I love it. <laughs> I think it's better, the double tiny. Oh, oh, a like tiny, it. tiny micro scale. That's right, that's right. It feels much smaller now. It's smaller than a venti, in case you're wondering. <laughs> I, but you, it's so tricky. And again, the the information in this book about trying to help people come to the table, interact with somebody else who's also coming to the table with all that stuff. Yeah. We only, yeah. I will never know you. Mm-hmm. And, and I will never know you. We could be not, friends for a not lifetime. Not the way I know myself. No. Exactly. And right. so my experience of, this is how it works in my brain. My experience of, of April yeah. is based on everything Susan has ever learned. Right. But it has nothing really truly to do with you. It does well, because it's, you it's behave all, a certain it's way. It's filtered, right? Yeah. That's yeah what I mean. It gets yeah. filtered through your own learning experiences. And my belief system. Your belief my system. my biases. Your and biases. Mm-hmm. And even your biology because... Because that, you know, determines how sensitive we tend to be to certain things, you know, certain stimuli. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, it's all getting filtered for sure. So Mm -hmm. crazy. Mm -hmm. 
But here's, you know, here's the thing about the main message of the book that I really hope people take away from it is that our power is in our choices. And if we're able to, even when we're triggered, even when we're upset, even when we're in emotional pain, stress, or, you know, something hugely challenged, if we're able to pause and not do that default automatic thing, but instead ask what really matters most to me in this situation and act on that, Mm. our lives would transform. The world would be a different place. You say that, that's a direct quote, ladies and gentlemen. You did say that in the book, (laughs) the world would be a different place. Where do you see this work developing and going? Mm -hmm. That's a good question. So I'm I'm actually marinating on that uh, as we speak. You know, the last chapter of the book was something new. Um, I had never written about this idea of playing infinite games, which, you know, has to do with how we can not only act on our values when we're upset or triggered to improve, you know, our quality of life and, and create more of what matters to us, but that we can proactively practice imagining what matters and how we would move toward that in all the different areas of our lives. And so, you know, in the book, I'm using a lot of this experiential practice or what we would call in clinical terms, exposure-based skills practice to help people, you know, not only just imagine what we want on an intellectual level, but to then feel it in their body, to, um, you know, uh, generate, intentionally generate the thoughts that would go with whatever it is that they're wanting to do that, you know, is challenging. And so um, what's kind of caught my interest is this idea of leveraging the power of imagination on a deeper level, which um, would be interesting to to expand because, you know, I think the, the field of psychology and new age stuff, you know, have, have not quite merged, but they're starting to um, they're starting to get together. So even, you know, even 10 years ago, this, the idea of doing visualization, um, probably would have sounded woo woo. But what we now know from the research on exposure is that if you can put yourself in an activated state, that's similar to the state you're going to be in when you do something that you find challenging or aversive, that it actually helps your emotional network build the tolerance that it needs to yeah the brain doesn't know the difference between the reality and the imaginary i I don't know if the brain doesn't know the difference that might be too black and white but the brain at least brings online and again i'm going to say the emotional network because it's bringing online not just thoughts which is what i think of when i think of brain but it's bringing your thoughts together with your the sensations in your body together with what the urges might be together with Uh, what your interpretation of that stuff is, which is your feelings. And then it's allowing you to have those and then practice seeing yourself do the thing that you want to be able to do, whether it's, you know, um, performers that I've worked with who have, you know, some sort of um, either show or game or something where they want to be able to, you know, make certain moves on the court or they you know, are maybe, you know, I have a performer, um, a past client who is great when they play big stadiums, but when they get in small venues, 
totally different experience. So we worked a lot on that. Um, and, and this kind of practice helped. And it's really just leveraging the power of imagination to bring to emotionally bring online all of the other things that will be present um, so that you get used to it. And, and what we know now from science is that visualization, if you're going to call it that, works because uh, we have what's called inhibitory learning, where you can intentionally, by practicing, uh, inhibit the response like you were talking about getting nervous when you go into that one particular bar. Um, and if you and I had worked together and we had practiced you seeing that place and imagining yourself there, we might have been able to inhibit the mm -hmm. response that was happening where, you know, you felt like you had to go to the bathroom immediately. Yeah. Yeah. I think about it's in terms of how insurance agencies separate mental health from body health, from teeth, from eyes. All those things somehow function separately, even <laughs> though they're in the same body. It and then so it's sort funny. of reminding me of that. Yeah, it's so funny. It's uh, it reminds me of, you know, I went to the doctor last week um, to because I was wanting to have my thyroid checked and um, I said, well, if, if my thyroid is within normal limits, then, you know, would we also look at my hormone levels? And he just said, oh, I don't do hormones. And I just thought, well, how does that help? You know, everything affects each other. It's all part of the, you know, the, yeah. the axis. So um, it is not a very effective way for us to uh, approach anything, whether it's medical or emotional, psychological. It, but it, it is, is all connected. Yeah, the idea that this, the brain is this great and powerful Oz behind a curtain, mm -hmm. and most mm -hmm. of us don't ever pull a curtain back mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, because mm -hmm. of what we think we might find, or just the, the not even realizing that we're, that we're able to. Mm -hmm. I think that's another big message you have in here, is that mm -hmm. we've been sort of sold a bill of goods that you can't that it just is what it is and that's mm. where this the story ends mm -hmm, mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. if i'm getting it right i think you're saying it's the story's only beginning is you step through that threshold well there's just so much more to understand than and i don't even know if i don't think of it as uh people thinking you can't understand it i think that a lot of people just genuinely don't understand it even people in my field don't necessarily understand this idea of, you know, all of what shapes our choices. I mean, this is a more um, kind of specialized area that I've dug into here around biases and cognitive, um, you know, cognition, but, um, and then tying that to the emotional stuff. Um, you know, you might find this interesting, Daniel Kahneman, Actually, do you know his work? He's amazing. He wrote uh, Thinking Fast and Slow, which has a lot to do with the same fast automatic decision making. Yeah. So he came up with this idea for the cognitive bias. What you see is all not all there is. And that's how I even got the idea for this book. Um, because it's not just what we see, because it's not just about thoughts. It's all it's about all of it. It's about everything we're experiencing emotionally and being able not to buy into that you know it's the as i described uh the emotional reasoning bias this idea that if i feel it it must be true mm -hmm. and then we relate to all of our thoughts feelings sensations and urges as the truth when sometimes they're really helpful and sometimes they're fake news yeah yeah you say that too uh, this pandemic has been an interesting experience for all of us yeah. uh, in lots of different ways 
Yeah. What are you seeing? What do you think the outcome of all of this mm. will be? Where are people yeah. in general? Yeah. It's a big question. Yeah. No, it's a big question. It's such a good one. Um, you know, I, th- I think... I think this pandemic has been sort of like all of us going through a massive breakup with our former lives. Mm. Uh, I think it's incredibly disorienting for a lot of people, especially uh, people who have kids at home or um, people who live alone who are single. That's who I've seen struggle the most with um, quarantining and, and isolation and not being able to be out and about with ease. So, you know, but I think we're just beginning to see the, the impact, really. Um, I haven't done a ton of research, but I have started to see uh, some research come out about the, you know, declining mental health, especially among teenagers. Uh, and I think, you know, we'll know a lot more even in a year. But, you know, whenever you, whenever you, people lose the sense of security that you were asking about earlier, you know, what we tend to do is we tend to default to, you know, sort of pulling in. And um, so it'll be interesting to see this is both uh, a trauma on some level and also an opportunity for us to get even more clear about what matters, how we want to live, um, where we want to invest our time, our resources. And, um, you know, I don't know. I don't know what we'll do with it, but I'm rooting for us to, you know, use it as leverage to become a better culture, a better world. Amen to that. I myself am not uh, free from going to dark places in my mind. Uh, if we have an instinctive idea, an instinctive nature to protect ourselves, to stay alive and all of that stuff, How, what happens? I mean, this is a big question too, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. why is it there are times when you think you can break free from that mechanism that's keeping you alive and on the planet? We see the like, suicide rates going up and, mm-hmm. and that from mm-hmm. the isolation or however, mm-hmm. whatever people mm-hmm. are going through and creating that ideation. What is the disconnect, do you think, that lets mm-hmm. the brain go, you know what, oh. that is a good idea. Yeah, yeah. Because it doesn't fit it's, in the, the mode of a human being's just yeah. most basic instinct. It's such a beautiful question, and I wish this was being asked more widely. Because when people are in that state, I, I liken it to, you know, sort of being dosed. Um, it's a whole different state, uh, psychologically, that... Um, that desire to that desperate desire to end pain and it usually happens because a number of uh, sort of vulnerabilities have all been triggered at the same time so often when someone's in that place it's because their sense of pain um, outweighs any sense of connection or meaning and that's that happens easily when we get isolated, unfortunately. So, um, but it, it is almost like a, a programming that kicks in. You know, a lot of people um, unfortunately choose to end their lives when they're in an altered state, rather than it being you know a real choice. You know, which by the way, I support uh, people's right to end their lives whenever they want to, but. Um, I prefer, <laughs> I would like for them to be able to do it, you know, thoughtfully and intentionally. And a lot of people who end their lives 
Um, I don't even use the word suicide, by the way, because it has such a moral judgment to it. Mm-hmm. But a lot of people who choose to end their lives are not doing it from a place of feeling like it's really a choice. It's, it's mm-hmm. You might think of it as the ultimate um, experiential avoidance. Yeah, and I've had conversations about uh, about this topic with people who... Mm-hmm. You know, one of their things like, well, I don't understand this person had a million friends and they're so mm-hmm. social. And yeah, and I often say you're confusing being around people with the feeling of loneliness. Those are two totally different things. We're a planet. Again, I've said this a billion times on this show, mm-hmm. a planet of seven billion people who oftentimes feel very alone. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, no, being being alone and being lonely are totally different things. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of people I work with actually feel alone a lot, even though they may have big families or lots of friends, or they may work in environments where there's people around. Uh, But that sense of feeling connected, and um, I sometimes think of it as, you know, having at least a few people who who are sort of your people, you know, you're from the same planet, um, and you feel seen and heard by them. Um, Without that, it's easy to feel lonely, even if you have lots of people around. Yeah. Yeah. To your point about not having judgment around folks who decide, I, I'm with you as that. I think people should have the dominion to do what they want. I do mm-hmm. think it causes a lot of pain on the other side for the people that sure. are left behind. Sure. But I also get it yeah. and respect people's decisions yeah. to, to do what they want with themselves. Yeah. And, uh, and people don't like to hear that. I'm sure yeah. you get pushback on that. You know, I've been I haven't, I haven't a been times. I haven't been public about it <laughs> yeah. until just now, oh, okay. so we'll see what happens. Yeah, from, from I support the area it. I, yeah. I, I get why people would think that's a horrifying idea. Totally understand, mm-hmm. but yeah, I'm with you that I. I think it's I think it's a it's cruel to keep people alive past the point where they can enjoy any quality of life if they don't want to keep living. Right. To me, that just, it seems so real. Yeah. And, you and know. I understand the argument on the other side, for mm-hmm. sure. Sure, but, me too. But again, hearkening back to the beginning of our conversation, you will never know what someone else is going through. It's, it's right. just, it's an impossibility. And right. as empathic as you think you are, mm-hmm. you will not ever get to that spot. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's so... Yeah. No, and that is one of the things that I think actually can be uh, a source of suffering for people is um, wanting somebody to fully know you and coming to the place of realizing that, you know, ultimately we hold ourselves better than anyone else ever could because Mm -hmm. nobody else ever really knows and sees us the way we do. It can be a real breakthrough for some people. Mm. Yeah. Have you had friends commit suicide? Or family? I have had, there have been a few people in my life who have ended their lives. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. sorry. I forgot no, you it's like fine. It. Yeah, I will it's redirect fine. that language. Is this good? All good. Yeah. Uh, I as well have had people in my life that have chosen to not keep going. Mm-hmm. And I have friends who've lost people as well. Mm-hmm. And you could call certain things also a slow suicide, like addiction mm-hmm. and, and all of that. Yeah. Um, and also yeah. people make choices yeah. to do what they want to do. Um, mm-hmm. I, see the, I see the gray in it. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's black and white. Mm-hmm. I don't think many things are, if anything, to be honest. Which, I, the more I do this, this human thing, yeah. 
regardless of the show, Hey Human, but the, the yeah. more I do this human thing, mm-hmm. the more I realize how gray it all is. It's everything in context. Yeah. You know, and, and things can look really different from, you know, whatever your side of the mountain is. Mine might have, you know, snow-capped Fraser furs and yours might have wildflowers and, you know, little bunnies hopping around. Sure. Um, and, you know, we just are seeing something different from where we sit. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's helpful. What would be a little bit of advice, perhaps, or what's a safe space maybe you can offer the listeners who might be going through something mm-hmm. right now? Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, you can't give medical advice mm-hmm. over the internets uh, this way if it's not your patient, all that stuff. But yeah. So I don't mean like that, but okay. you know what I'm saying, just sort of something to help someone get into maybe a a more grounded frame of reference you mean someone who's uh suffering emotionally or in distress on any level yeah we're not talking Uh about those Uh who are thinking Uh i'm gonna jump off this cliff right now i'm just talking about in general just humanity Yeah. yeah well i mean one of the so one of the practices in the book is just validating feelings and you know um just saying something as simple as you know it makes sense that i'm angry that you know, my friend didn't want to talk to me when I was upset, or it makes sense that I'm frustrated that, you know, people are or aren't wearing their masks, depending on what you believe, Um, that often just, you know, giving ourselves permission to feel our feelings can be incredibly grounding. That's great advice. Yeah. Yeah. Tell people how they can find you. Oh, Uh, they can find me uh, through my website which is dr.apriliawest.com. And uh, I love hearing from people, by the way. Uh, I'm also on Instagram at dr.apriliawest. And it's probably the best way, unless you're in Venice. (laughs) (laughs) There you go. Uh, And are you you actively seeing patients then? I have... Or clients, I don't know what you call them. Yeah, I call them clients just because I am more of a positive psychologist and um, I you know, work from a more collaborative sort of sharing of power uh, frame. But uh, yeah, I do. I have a I have a small psychotherapy practice. And then I also do a lot of coaching with leaders and teams, which is great. And then another part of my time is spent training therapists and coaches, which I've been doing, you know, throughout the pandemic, actually, which has been um, a cool uh, experience for me. I've been able to uh, train people from all over the world from from the comfort of my zoom april thank you dr west welcome oh this is fun and i appreciate you having me on absolutely it's been my pleasure i i was eagerly awaiting the the book because uh, we we talked about it long ago when you were thinking about writing a book Mm -hmm. about you being on the show when it was completed so i'm really excited that uh, that you were able to do so yeah Thank you for listening, everyone. Uh, Stay safe out there. Bye. Bye. Rate, review, and subscribe to Hey Human on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Bye.